The Not Your Usual Podcast is brought to you by Glava, the one and only tangerine honey spiced whiskey liqueur. Glava's origins are bathed in bold experimentation. Born in Leith in 1947 and awarded a record 15 times at the International Wine and Spirit Competition, this unique liqueur is rich, it's sweet, it's warming, and it's wonderfully versatile. Fearlessly pioneering far-flung spice bursts, Glava is most definitely not your usual. Hello and welcome back to Not Your Usual, a new podcast from The Skinny Magazine and Glaver. We speak to exciting people from across the Scottish cultural scene who are doing things a little differently from the usual. And we're joined today by Glasgow-based author Heather Parry. Heather is a fantastic author of fiction and non-fiction. Her debut novel, Orpheus Builds a Girl, was nominated for the Polari First Book Prize. And her recent short story collection, This Is My Body Given For You, is an exploration of the body and the ways it can be changed, altered and escaped from. And her debut non-fiction book is out next year at 404 Inc. But we're going to discuss all of that in the fullness of the episode. Meanwhile, Heather, welcome to Not Your Usual. Cheers. Cheers, Anahi. How are you? I'm okay. So Heather is currently in Glasgow. I'm in Edinburgh, but I did over the weekend hand deliver Heather a bottle of Glaver because we are on this call trying the Jumping Bean, which is a Glaver cocktail with espresso, which our producer Peter went to Love Crumbs to get. God bless him. Um, and it's also got maple syrup and double cream. Heather, you are the biggest cocktail expert that I know. Can you tell me what it tastes like? <laughs> yeah, I should say you mean just by consumption, then, yeah, not sure. by actual training or anything. <laughs> I just really love a cocktail. I don't know anything about them. Um, but I should say my coffee is also from a French monkey, which is my local coffee place in Glasgow. I mean, I really enjoy this as a potential after dinner drink. Mm. We're doing it pre-dinner now, so you know it works at any time. <laughs> um, there's like a tangerine It's kind of, it's got like the vibe of a kind of coffee chocolate orange, hasn't it? Because it's oh got God, tangerine, yes. tangerine under it and it's got honey and maple syrup in the cocktail as well. So it's got that kind of layered sweetness. Yeah. This is the kind of thing I would drink like two of after a meal <laughs> and then wonder why I can't sleep at 2am. Yeah, I always forget that espresso martinis have actual caffeine in them. I'm like, no, this is like my little treat, but it also does make you buzz. But yeah, it is really good. This is my perfect cocktail. I love cocktails that taste really, really sweet, really creamy. Um, basically like dessert. It feels along the same kind of like vibe landscape as um, Billy Crystal in that really thick jumper in When Harry Met Sally. Oh my like, God, it's yes. The, <laughs> it's got that kind of fall, like cozy, delicious, you're getting towards Christmas kind of vibe. Yeah, that's so true. That is such a good cultural reference. This is, <laughs> yeah, Nora Ephron season. We are coming into it. Um, I love that you've kind of introduced like coziness into this podcast because transitioning into your books you are not a cozy author Heather I don't know if anyone's told you this but (laughs) we're working with opposites today like I was saying you're a very very prolific author um, but I don't think you're a cozy author could you tell me a little bit about the kind of books that you have written yeah I mean I I'm a cozy author in that the, my my flat is freezing, so I'm often writing with like one or two hot water bottles jammed up a jumper, and possibly a cat on my lap if they can be convinced to sit there for any amount of time. But yeah, I kind of write um, what Alice Slater would call horrible little books. I think <laughs> um, so. My novel that you mentioned, Office Builds a Girl, is a kind of gothic, very body focused fiction. I mean, I don't, I can't call it horror. I don't think it's a horror, but mm. it's, um, it's based on a real event that happened in 1920s Florida when a 
German doctor, and please imagine heavily done, um, like big, big. like inverted commas here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he fell in love with commas again, um, a young Cuban American woman who had TB, and he convinced her family that he could cure her. When of course it wasn't possible at that time, um, and. I don't want to give away the entire plot, but I will say she dies, and that's about halfway through the book. <laughs> and she she's not absent from the rest of the book either, so she's very much present. Um, and it's a very, very body-focused book, and there's lots of kind of... It's very visceral, maybe mm. is the best way to describe it. Um, and I think that carries through to the short story collection as well. I think it's it it looks at bodies in a completely different way, I think, and, and with a different kind of moral project but it's all about the body as a changeable thing as a vulnerable thing as a usable thing as a site of transformation a site of horror a site of inspiration and all that kind of thing yeah and then you have the book with 404 ink that is coming out next april i believe yes and that's called electric dreams sex robots and the failed promises of capitalism yep baby and what is that about um well you're one of the only people that's read it so yeah. far <laughs> and i <laughs> love it <laughs> <laughs> including I don't even think my publishers have read it yet because I only sent it to them yesterday um so I've been kind of obsessed with sex bo- sex robots as a concept because as I like to bring up at every opportunity they don't actually exist yet mm-hmm. despite what the media kind of circus would have you believe I'm really interested in why we find them so seductive as a concept and why we listen to the kind of Elon Musk's and the Peter Thiel's and the those kind of people when they tell us not only that they'll happen but they will want them like Mm. i i can kind of see the kind of novelty angle but we're being expected to believe that there'll be like humanoid robots walking about by 2050 and that we'll all be marrying and having let's say physical relations with them i'm not sure what the (laughs) the limits are of what we're going to say so i'm going to make it pg that Um, was so biblical (laughs) <laughs> we will know robots in a <laughs> biblical sense. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I've, I've just been thinking about this for so long and I've been trying to write a version of this book for so long that kind of takes a philosophical perspective and a theoretical perspective. So it's kind of five essays that approach the concept of sex robots from a different position. So um, seeing them as a kind of totem of hyper-individuality or as a trigger for regressive feminism and kind of pulling out all the kind of little threads of thought from that. Mm -hmm. So all of your books, like you're kind of saying, concern the body in various ways. And I'm really curious what it is firstly about the body that keeps drawing you back to it. And then also what it is about these various kind of forms, both like short story, novel, nonfiction, that you feel kind of comfortable or that you're, because you're one of the few authors that I know that writes across such a broad spectrum of like genre and form. Um, So what is it about like these different kinds of of forms of writing? So anything from essay to short story that feel like they offer something different and how you can explore this similar theme? Hmm, That's a really good question. Oh my God, thanks. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm actually most comfortable writing nonfiction, I think, because mm. that's what I kind of originally did. I was like a student music journalist and um the most exciting day of my life when I was at university was drinking with Biffy Clyro and oh my God. them. <laughs> that's so nice. <laughs> Strong two thousand and four vibes there. Um <laughs> 
so yeah, I kind of, I was, I really wanted to be Lester Bangs uh, when I was like a 15, 16 year old girl. Um, and that didn't happen for kind of obvious reasons. Also, I don't know if I did want to be a kind of 70s strung out um, music journalist. I do like the idea of writing kind of long, insane fictional monologues with Lou Reed, which is the thing that he did, but my, my life took me off that course. And um, I... I came into fiction a bit late in the day, to be honest, it, towards my late 20s, because it was kind of always what I had really wanted to do. But I didn't know I didn't I didn't come from a background where that felt like a viable way to approach life. <laughs> like I didn't yeah. know any people who worked in the creative industries. I didn't know any writers. My parents didn't know any writers like that's not what happens to you where I'm from. So I wanted it and I wanted it so much that I rejected it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then over the last 10 years, I've kind of really scrabbled my way up like a, like a particularly aggressive rodent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I suppose they offer different things because with fiction, you are asking someone to enter into a kind of what if scenario with you, like what if this happened? And what I like to do is reveal at the end of things that is based on something true, yeah. <laughs> as happens with the book, but or to, or take things from reality as well. So it's kind of a what if, but you're you're already living in the what if world because that is the world we live in. Um, whereas nonfiction, you're kind of really just trying to pull someone's point of view towards yours for a brief period to see if they find it more comfortable than their own or you can lay things out you know with a bit more kind of underpinning than with fiction and you don't require you kind of don't require them to trust you quite so much like you really you need a reader to trust you with fiction mm -hmm. but with non-fiction you're like I will convince you yeah <laughs> you know there's no there's no leap of faith there um and then if they decide at the end of it that you're full of um rubbish then they don't have to agree with you yeah. And what is it about kind of the body that keeps drawing you back across these different kinds of modes of writing? I mean, that's the eternal question, isn't it? I, um, I, <laughs> I, I'm very interested in the fact that we're kind of necessarily embodied. Mm. And as much as we know, and as far as our experiences taught us, there's no way of us getting out of this. Like we'll always be trapped in a subjectivity. Um, apologies, by the way, that I am the most obvious philosophy uh, student of all time. So. You really are. Like you go for it. You own it so well. <laughs> the only person I, I know who does like, and it's chic. <laughs> I have an existentialist tattoo, which is distinctly not chic. And I also paid £20 for it in Rotherham in, when I was 21. So it doesn't even look good either. Anyway, um, you're really trapped in this subjective experience of the world while you're also being objectified by kind of everyone around you. Mm. So I find that a really interesting position. And also when I was uh, young, I was quite sick in, in various different ways. I had really bad asthma. I also had really bad eczema. Mm. So in my like most formative years as a little buttery flapjack of a child, <laughs> I I had to kind of grow up in a world where the barrier between me and the outside world was not strong and it wasn't kind of reliable. So my physical body has always felt vulnerable and, mm. and like changeable and changing to its kind of own whims because often I would wake up and I just wouldn't know what the state of my body would be. Yeah. Um, and I think that's an experience that a lot of people have. But for me, being a writer, it's just something I, I'm not very, I'm not even keen to get away from it because I think it's a really interesting way to look at the world. I'm really interested in that kind of idea that almost like individual relationship of what is that kind of barrier between like the individual self and then the outside world that very much is a theme that runs through your books but then there is also 
the way that you think about the body is often also very like structural. So you think about how like the body is like a cipher or a vessel for various like structures of power. So whether the ways that it's gendered, the ways that it's queer, the ways that it's kind of racialized, the body is not like a neutral space in your writing, which I always find like really, really interesting. I'm curious, like what brings about that approach? Yeah, that's a really astute observation and one that I will use in future and pretend that I knew from the start. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I kind of can't, I can't conceive of thinking of the body as an, as a neutral space. Mm. Um, and I'm sure there are people who must feel like that. And I'm sure they are straight, white, cis, able-bodied men, but I don't think you can have a girlhood using a term that I know you relate to quite a lot in how you look at arts and stuff. I don't think you can have a girlhood, any kind of female experience and imagine that your body is a neutral space, whether, you know, everything, every experience you have from a child, not being allowed to wear certain things or being told to cover up certain things or not being allowed to run around naked in a park when you were a little kid, but maybe your brother was, or, you know, all this kind of, you're taught that your body is something that has to be protected or covered up or sheltered or censored in some way Mm. and then you know that is the state of being a woman I think you can kind of change your relationship to that and you can reject it and you can choose not to live your life by those structures if you will but it is kind of how you know you sit within the world Mm. in the body that you have so yeah I just can't imagine not thinking of how other people's bodies respond or placed within these different power structures as well. Mm. I will say as well, a thing that I was thinking yesterday is I also often write about food. Yeah, that's true. Which is another like really, really embodied experience. Also Mm -hmm. write about sex sometimes, which is another (laughs) really embodied experience. And it's all to do with things going in or out of your body, isn't it? It's, It's how your body chooses to meld with other things and what pleasures you can take in them, but what dangers there are as well. And like, they're the, I guess I'm concerned with like where we are trapped as people and we're trapped in our bodies. We're trapped in a relationship with food. We're trapped in a relationship with sex. Even if you're rejecting it, that's a, having a relation that's making it a choice. Mm. So yeah, I guess I'm, I mean, it's really unimaginative really because I'm just kind of writing from exactly where I am and exactly what I have to do and what I like to do. Mm. But no, I think that is really like, I really like what you were saying about kind of like girlhood and that experience of being sort of in that sort of like gendered body because it is this simultaneously private and public experience right like you're taught that it's your body is something that has to be private that no one needs to look at it that you should protect it that's something that you need to manage but at the same time it's absolutely public property right like it is anyone's to look at to comment on to observe to decide what to do with and that's like a really difficult tension that I think in Orpheus Builds a Girl, like goes to an extreme, right? But actually even in, um, I'm thinking of the first story in your collection, the mm-hmm. one about like the menstruation, but it's like through the eyes, which I'm not going to give more context. That is just <laughs> what it is. <laughs> but yeah, there's a really interesting kind of tension between public and private, I suppose, in your work. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's really interesting. That's not really been brought up to me before. But yeah, the people are hiding things a lot. I think as well, I'm really, really interested in self-deception as a concept, as a philosophical concept, but also as just a kind of, we all do it all of the time. It's how we relate to reality. So that's one part, you know, you're hiding something from yourself often. But yeah, the the physical kind of hiding, restraining or presenting of things is, I guess, yeah, another kind of common theme 
through my work. And I think that that does have its root in girlhood as well, because I mean, you know, we get to be young teenagers and then we're told that our bodies does this thing, Mm. but you kind of can't show anyone (laughs) the result of what's going to happen to you every month. And you have to like, you know, go to all these lengths, some of which are painful, some of which are just kind of not fun to hide your body's kind of natural excretions. Yeah. And it's, simultaneously seen as kind of like a sacred thing, something that's key to your kind of femininity or womanhood. Like, well, oh my God, you know, you'll have a baby when you're older. And, Mm. but it's also like, but for now you've got to be really ashamed of it and you've got to hide it. And we wouldn't even actually tell the boys about it because it's such a female secret. And, you know, I I recently found out that uh, someone's um, teenage daughter that I knew was kind of hiding her like sanitary, uh, like towels and stuff in her cupboard which is something I also did when I was like quite a young teenager because it's like you didn't even want to put them where like all the rubbish goes in your house. So do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I think of that kind of like hoarding as quite a quite a like witchy thing. You know, what I mean? like I have made this and I'm keeping it now, <laughs> which is actually what happens in Orpheus as well. Mm. The, the keeping of parts of bodies and yeah. the keeping of kind of semi-religious kind of pseudo relics from people. I guess that comes up a lot as well. Yeah, wow. I'm quite a little freak, aren't I? <laughs> But in the best way. <laughs> um, I read Orpheus this week, um, and I also read your the upcoming Electric Dreams at the same time. Which I'm so sorry. I, no, it was. I mean, it, it was t- disturbing, like I will say, but like in a really cool way. <laughs> I had a great time, but I also had a terrible time, um, but in a nice way. But I, it was really interesting actually reading them alongside each other because I maybe on paper they seem like the most kind of different across like what you've written but I thought it was really interesting you were talking about kind of writing about sex as well right now how in both of these books you're investigating these quite kind of complex and disturbing imaginations that we have around bodies and power but through this kind of lens of supposed desire so in Orpheus it's this kind of quote-unquote doctor that desires this young Cuban patient In the sex robots book, it's about people desiring sex robots and desiring kind of this passivity in their sexual partner, essentially. Um, And I'm interested in the ways that kind of desire and violence are often two sides of the same coin or desire and power, I suppose, in your writing and why, why that is, why you find that interesting. So I think, yeah, they definitely go hand in hand a lot or they dip into each other or they become one another, I think, in my work. And I think part of that is a recognizing that desire does tip over into violence in so many instances for so many different people around the world. But also, especially, well, actually with both books that you've just mentioned, I think I'm really just trying to question whether that is actually how we experience desire, because men especially are taught that that is how they should experience desire, that you should want someone so much that you won't let anyone have them and you don't want to let them go and you don't want to see them out with another man. You know, what's mm. the, was it Mike Pence who said like, he doesn't let, he doesn't like eat at a table with another woman who's not his wife or something like this. You know, it's like heterosexual desire. Behavior. <laughs> <laughs> it's seen as very like exclusionary. Like you have to kind of possess each other in a way that is really quite violent and violent from a, you know, point of view of the other person's agency and really into, Oh God, this is another philosophy 
um, student comment. Jean-Paul Sartre has this thing about like love, kind of like, he doesn't say heterosexual, but let's say desire can never be really authentic because you are always wanting um, to put a limit on your partner's freedom. Whereas his partner, Simone de Beauvoir, was like, that's not true at all. You can actually have an authentic love where you don't limit on someone's freedom. You love them. You want absolute freedom for them. And you just love them regardless. And I think that's really interesting. Mm. And I wonder if men actually do experience desire in this way. It's like, you know, in the Sex Robots book, a lot of it is, is this really how men approach women? Because I don't really believe it. I think it's how they are taught to approach women. Mm. This I want a completely submissive partner. I want to have completely control, complete control over the person that I'm having sex with. Like some people do like that as a kind of um a thoughtful way to approach sex and as a as a game. But I don't actually think most people want to just completely confine their partner. Mm. That is not what I consider love to be. And it's not actually how most people that I see having great relationships approach each other at all so I guess the question for me is always like how much of this is real and how much of this is just what we've been taught Mm. how much of this is how we think desire should go and you know how much of it is a really performative kind of well I want her so I must have her and no one else can have her and she must be trapped in my home and she must give me sex whenever I want like Mm. is that hot I don't think it is no it's not (laughs) like actually demonstrably isn't but it is very yeah it's very gothic right which is like a tradition that you're often kind of placed within but it's that's Wuthering Heights right like that's Jaina that's all of these kind of books that like are within that gothic tradition that idea of like desire and violence and possession um and it does make me kind of wonder to what extent that is because it's a tradition that you're often like placed in to what extent is it a tradition or a mode of writing that you're deliberately writing towards or do you kind of think of yourself as more like post genre um I really like the phrase post genre yeah Um... I don't know what it means but (laughs) I think it sounds cool (laughs) I've been described as a horror writer a lot lately and I don't vibe with that really. Not because I'm, I think it's offensive. I think I love horror, Um, but it's just not really the framework in which I'm trying to work. And I will do different things for different projects too. So like Orpheus is very gothic and the second novel that I've been working on is also very gothic, but the new one I'm working on really isn't. And it will have a lot of gothic elements, I'm sure, because that's kind of where I came of age as a reader and a writer was in gothic fiction. Um, Especially Wuthering Heights, my God, that was so my jam when I was like 11, it not was 11, life sorry, changing. 18. Yeah, 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 it ruined life. <laughs> it really did, it really did. We all wanted to be Catherine. Um, yeah, I. so I think it's a two-part question, are we kind of post-genre? I think there's a question of whether writers are post-genre and whether the publishing industry is, because I know a lot of writers who write within genre and they find that really freeing and supportive and they find that within the kind of confines of genre they can free themselves whereas I see those to be quite constraining but those people who aren't writing within genre are doing a lot of really cool post-genre style stuff like even in terms of format and in terms of um, expression on the page but also in terms of you know being outside of a really recognizable genre whereas the publishing industry which has long been kind of very white, very male, very middle class, very straight, very cis. It kind of doesn't know what to do with people who aren't marketable in a particular very narrow mm. um, genre, but also kind of like any kind of marketing term that's not genre 
based as well. And I think that's why people who aren't from that white, straight, cis middle class position are often done really badly by the publishing industry because the publishing industry is trying to force their stories into a genre or a marketing term that they don't quite fit in. So I think they often don't feel seen very much and they don't feel like their work is being seen, but also they aren't finding the right readers. Mm. Uh, which actually, I should, that's quite a horrible way of looking at the publishing industry. There are t- tons of people in the publishing industry who are changing that and challenging that. And there are amazing presses who are challenging that as well. But I think generally the publishing industry really loves genre. Mm. And I think a lot of writers don't. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then that is why kind of like small presses are so important, particularly here in Scotland, because they do kind of manage to go beyond that in so many ways. Yeah. And, you know, even within the big um, publishers as well, there's some really cool, interesting editors and commissioning editors and assistants who are trying to do a lot of that change making as well. Yeah, which is exciting. That is like an optimistic place to leave it, I think, <laughs> after our like, very horrible discussion <laughs> about bodies and gothic horror. Um, so Orpheus Builds a Girl is out with Gallic Books. Um, this is My Body Given for You is out with Haunt. And Electric Dreams is going to be out with Forifil Inc. in April. I really would encourage everyone to buy them all. They are so, so good. Um, oh, thank Heather, thank you. Can I also just say, can I, sorry, if you're going to buy Electric Dreams, you should also buy BFFs <laughs> by Anna Hiberus. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> and who else? Uh, Arusa Qureshi, uh, Casey Garo, all incredible writers within the same series and they're so like they're perfect little pocketbooks so you might as well get like 10 is yeah, what I'm saying a little inkling babies and then you get to like add to your reading list really quickly which always makes me feel very smug it's very exciting oh yeah like you the books you've read yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. like your number <laughs> shoots up um thank you so much for talking to me Heather this has been so lovely um thank you oh, to Glaver so for sponsoring this and yeah have a lovely day I'll see you soon perfect time to finish my drink yes. thank you <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the Not Your Usual podcast with Heather Parry and Anahit Baruz, edited and produced by Peter Simpson for The Skinny Magazine. Uh, for more episodes of Not Your Usual, head to the places that you usually get podcasts. And for more from Glaver, visit glaver.com. <laughs>